Welcome to this episode of Safe Home Podcast for struggling teens and their families finding their healing path. I'm Beth Syverson, a mom of an 18-year-old son, Joey, who's been dealing with addiction and mental health issues for several years. I'm walking beside him as he struggles with his recovery while I work on my own personal growth and healing. Today's guest is Pam Lanhart. She's the director of the Minnesota-based nonprofit organization, Thrive Family Recovery Resources, that she started in 2016 to help families with addicted loved ones. She's a certified recovery coach, peer specialist, speaker, author, and advocate for those dealing with substance use disorder and their families. She has a book and a Facebook page called Praying Our Loved One Home that our Christian audience members will especially love. She recently lost her young adult son, Jake, to the disease of addiction. But like our dear friend, Heather Ross, she is forging ahead more determined than ever to help families so they can help their struggling teens and young adults who are battling with addiction. Pam subscribes as I do to the craft approach of treating our addicted loved ones with unconditional love and positive regard, no matter where they are in their sobriety. She will tell us more about how that approach has served her family as we talk, I'm sure. So thank you very much for being here with us on Safe Home, Pam. Glad you're here. It is an honor to be here, Beth. Thanks for inviting me. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you. Me too. First, I'm so sorry to hear about your son, Jake's death. Uh, It was last October, I believe. And I didn't know you then. I wasn't following you. But since learning about your story, I have a feeling his death wasn't a complete shock to your family. I wonder if that's true. And if if so, what parts of the story about Jake would you like to share with us? Well, thank you for, you know, saying, I thank you for validating and acknowledging his death. I think that the part that resonated with me when you asked that question was, it wasn't a shock. Um, and it wasn't. Uh, I think that if you have audience members who have been walking down this road or been on this journey for any length of time, you look at a picture and you wonder if it's going to be the picture you're going to use at their service, funeral service. Mm -hmm. You plan that in your head and you're always aware. Mm -hmm. And in the space that I'm in, I really believe in treating substance use and mental illness like medical disorders. And therefore, we know, as with cancer, diabetes, uh, heart disease, that there are people that will not make it out, Mm -hmm. that we will lose people, and we lose people to addiction, and we lose people to suicide. And so you're always aware. Um, I think one of the things that we did really well, and we'll talk about this more today, is balance that awareness with always, always believing in recovery. And Mm -hmm. I believe in holistic recovery. I believe recovery is possible. I have immersed myself in the recovery community. Mm -hmm. And so we never doubted ever that Jake would recover. And people have asked about that post his passing. And I 100% do not regret that we walked through that the way that we did, um, believing in recovery. And he was in recovery mm-hmm. for a long time and until the day he wasn't. And it was a one day reoccurrence of use that led to his passing. And uh, and 
one of the things that we did was just embraced moments with him and treated him with that unconditional positive regard. Now, part of our story is that we didn't start that way and we didn't get there right away and it was a journey. But we we always walked through this in a way that was uh, Dale Carnegie training. I don't know, 80 years ago, wrote a book and he, in his book, he said, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. And we prepared for the worst, knowing that he could die. And it's a progressive disease. So we saw the progression of the disease. But we always hoped for the best. And I'm a person that will not be a victim. And I don't want to unpack my suitcase in a place of darkness or despair. And Mm -hmm. for me, the work of my recovery was always that journey of uh, balance and being hope-filled and at the same time, like we know it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. The day-to-day is just really gnarly sometimes. <laughs> he just, what, what was Jake's drug of choice? Well, he, he was a poly substance user. I'll kind of start from the beginning just to give a little context and background. When he was 13, we got a call from school that he had brought a backpack full of leftover medications to school. It was a pharmacy in his backpack. He was in seventh grade. So, of course, that was shocking to us back then. This was in 2010. We didn't have the context that we have now with substance use and didn't have the, we didn't even have the thought in our head that was, I wonder why, Uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the craft approach and invitation to change approach, there's this concept that behaviors make sense. And there's always a why the drug isn't the problem. The drug is the solution. And the problem is I don't fit in. I have anxiety. I have depression. We have definitely a family history of substance use. My dad died when I was 27 from the disease. I have siblings who are in recovery. And, you know, of course we knew that that could be a possibility, Mm -hmm. but didn't really have the concepts that we have now. And And I love that you're working with younger families because if we can help parents when it's way upstream before they get into the river, then we're not pulling them out, you know, years later. Right. I try to think, what would I wish I had known when he was 11, 10? And what would have changed, you know, if I had known some of these things before? So I try really hard to reach those parents. So if any of you listening know parents of 10, 11 year olds or even younger, it's never too early to get this information in the parent's head and uh, get these new behaviors and new family systems habits going. It will help you when they hit adolescence for sure. And there's a really, really good documentary by Chris Heron called The First Day that parents could even watch with their kids. And it's appropriate for all ages. And, you know, it talks about that the, the first use isn't about the use. It's about the pain. I'm being yep. bullied in school. Yep. I don't feel like I fit in. And later, as Jake did a lot of treatment work and we worked together as a family, that was uncovered that he didn't feel like he fit in. He didn't feel like he was good enough. And I can relate to that growing up in the trauma of my own family. And sometimes we have learning differences. Sometimes, you know, we're a little ADD or ADHD. And I want to just clarify and speak this out that 
that pain doesn't necessarily mean that it's your fault, mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Not everyone with pain becomes addicted. Mm-hmm. Not everyone with pain experiments with substance, substances. Yeah. Uh, and, and if we knew the answer to these questions of why, you know, why does one person try it and one person doesn't? Yeah. Why, when one yeah. person tries it, immediately it activates yeah. an addiction? Yeah. Why does one person make it out alive who seems like they don't want to live? And why does someone who wants to live die? You know, if we could answer those questions, you know, we would be rich, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, the truth is we don't really know the why. And some of those whys weren't even really uncovered initially. But had I taken a step back and asked and known the skills yeah. that I now help families to gain with uh, being curious and wondering, yeah. I think it could have been a whole different journey. So so put yourself back there now, knowing what you know now, school calls, your kid came with a backpack full of drugs. Were they just drugs he collected from his friends of leftovers from their cupboards? Yeah, pretty much was. It was, I had some pain pills from a previous surgery that he had gotten a hold of. Some of it was just like over the counter for, you know, yeah. pharmaceuticals, but it clearly was a red flag. Yeah, yeah. One of the reasons why we started doing the work that we do and why I started our nonprofit was because our first responders failed us. Oh, okay. So tell me what happened and then what you wish would have happened. So we had a church community, we had a school community, and we had pediatricians. And, uh, you know, I, I always share this example that when my daughter was struggling with self-harm, the guidance counselor called us. The school, you know, connected with our daughter. We got packets full of resources and we got referred to therapeutic interventions. And when my son brought these pills to school, he got suspended. Uh, I'm going to go off on just a tiny tangent. We are conditioned that we are in a war on drugs from the time we were born and I'm pretty old. We have been conditioned, right? So this started back in the twenties mm-hmm. with Billy Holiday and um, FBI director Isingler, and they were waging a war on the African-American community and they created this war on drugs. And then of course, as we went into the Reagan era and beyond that, you know, it was just saying, no, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. and mm-hmm. and even. In the faith community, there are words that we use like demons and fighting battles and waging war and the stigma of addiction is so prevalent in our society as a moral failing. And therefore, some of the advice was, well, clamp down on him, take his all of his social media away, lock him in your house you know, monitor term 24 seven, there wasn't any ideas presented to us in regards to non punitive consequences and collaborative communication. So collaborative communication, that might be completely new language to some parents, because a lot of us when Joey was going through this too, I'm like, I don't know what to do. You just know, punishing you know, the good parents set limits and do those kinds of things. What is this collaborative communication you're talking about? 
So I have a lot of external references that I, you know, like to point families to. Um, Raising Human Beings by Ross Green is a book that every parent should read. But collaborative communications in general is active listening. So it's, you know, I'm curious and I'm wondering, and can you explain? And can you tell me more? And trying to create a a safe, we hear all the time now the language of safe spaces. Mm -hmm. And so we know that people don't open up and connect or heal unless they feel safe. What does it mean to feel safe? It means I feel heard. I feel validated. I feel listened to. So collaborative communication starts with being quiet as a parent. Mm. (laughs) That's the hardest thing. Well, because Uh. so What happens is because we've had this war on drugs, you know, the first place we go to is fear and protection. Well, it's illegal. And so you're like, oh, crap, my kid's doing something illegal and kind of naughty and scary. And it's so many layers of it. And parents, you know, understandably flip out. Mm -hmm. But the flipping out is not very helpful. Is that what you're saying? And, you know, the naughty, (laughs) the naughty, (laughs) the the naughty narrative, you know, they're, they're breaking our rules. They're doing this to us. We take it personally. And we, you know, if we were to pause and take a step back and think, there's a reason. And what is the reason? Mm -hmm. And sometimes they won't open up right away. Sometimes this is a really long process. Mm -hmm. We did do a couple of things right in that period of time, even though we couldn't control his coping mechanisms, which were Mm -hmm. the substances, we leaned in. Uh And it's so easy when somebody's being naughty to get Mm -hmm. frustrated and punish. And everything about punishment is you go to your room, you, you know, and it's separate. separate. Mm -hmm. And so the consequences is to not be in relationship. And the the counterintuitive challenge is to actually lean in more to that relationship. Because you said your son was feeling like he didn't belong, like he was being left out at school, maybe at home too. And my son too, he was being bullied relentlessly for being Asian. And guess who he found to do drugs with? A bunch of Asian kids that were also being bullied. Well, that makes complete and total sense. But if, if I had come in and said, you're cut off, I'm not talking to you, you know, that would just reinforce his sense of, I don't belong here. I have no one to talk to. You know, it just goes against, you know, it would probably feed into him wanting to use drugs more if I had done that. And, and you know, the narrative of disconnection is killing our kids. Yes. I'm just going to, that's yes. very inflammatory, but I'm going to be honest. No, it All is. All of these it slogans, is. detach, let go, disconnect. Um, and not that we, there aren't, Uh, definitions around that or qualifiers, you know, Um, we do want to let go of expectations. We do want to disconnect from drama. But what happens in the world of social media and sound bites is that these slogans are used to justify really problematic behaviors that parents... The cutting off, the cutting off. Uh Yeah, and you're right. Like we cut them off or we even if they're minors, and I know you're talking to parents of younger kids, but, you know, we punish, right? Go to your room. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. that's not restorative. 
Mm-mm. right? And now I'm in my room and what am I going to do? I'm going to yeah. figure out how to connect with something or someone that will make me feel good about myself. Yeah. Yeah. And parents, you don't want them going toward their peers at that point or going toward social media or going toward some guy on YouTube that's going to tell them some crazy thing. You want them coming toward you, ideally, if you're put together and aware, you want them coming your direction. I think that's the whole thing about the invitation to change and craft approach, right? You want them connected. So when they do have a question or or a concern or they took too much of something or are facing some big challenge, you want them coming your direction. So that's that's what I've been trying to do so much with Joey is whatever he's going through. And sometimes it's pretty hard and difficult to stand with him. But whatever he's going through, I want him to be connected to me so I can help him when he's ready, mm-hmm. ready to be helped. Mm-hmm. Because without connection, we have no influence. Right. So you want that influence. Connection before correction, right? And mm-hmm. so one of the things that we did, which we are really grateful for, is we leaned into that mess. And, and you know, for us, it was like, okay, he's really a risk taker. He's an adventurer. So we engaged in all of these, you know, adventurous, fun, risk-taking things with him. So took him out biking, joined an MMA gym, started climbing mountains nice. with him. And throughout his years of active substance use, those things served us so well. And those connections served us well. Because it provides him that risk-taking, but within a relatively safe manner, right? But it it gives him that sense of adventure and outdoors and movement. He reminds me a lot of my kid. My kid was never a kind of sit-still kind of person at all. He he just needed to move. And so the drugs are an easy way to provide that risk-taking, adventurous kind of, it like clicks all those buttons. But um, so you found other ways for him to engage in that kind of behavior, which were a little safer. At least you were with him most of the time, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. And probably you have some really great memories of doing really fun stuff together. Really, really good memories. And not that at times it wasn't hard, because as you know, a 14 year old boy is not easy, even when they're good, (laughs) you know, even when they're they're toeing the line. Um, yeah, it's a tough age. Oh, we get him out of his environment and out into the yeah. mountains of Colorado, and he was a different kid. Yeah, um, we get awesome. him out of, you know, the typical day-to-day and get him out on a mountain bike trail. He was a different kid. And and so there's, you know, some things that we did right. I think that we would have uh, been better served to try to understand. And I want to mention that sometimes that feels like condoning, asking the question, you know, tell me more about what that moment when you used did for you, what led up to it and what did it feel like? And, and how was it, how did it work for you? You know, now they'll often say, well, I didn't even like it, you know? Um, And then instead of just saying, oh, great. And walking away, you can have a little deeper inquiry of, well, tell me more about that. Like, what did it feel like? And getting into the weeds of, you know, how did this help you cope in the moment and trying to understand Mm -hmm. rather than just sort of 
there's a type of discipline, it's called conscious discipline. Hmm. And uh, you can Google it. It's something that schools use and they inform their teachers about conscious discipline. There's extrinsic punishment. Mm -hmm. There's permissiveness Mm -hmm. and no consequences. And then there's the middle ground of conscious consequences. Mm -hmm. And that's where we ask these open-ended questions and we collaborate and we evoke curiosity so that we can learn the why. Yeah, that's so great. And it also, it not only informs you, but it informs him, the person who's addicted. It makes them think about it. Huh, why am I doing this? I wonder if that helps maybe eventually draw people toward recovery, just that self-awareness that you're encouraging them to think about. And how their behavior impacts other people people as well right it is not a single person's issue (laughs) I don't know if anyone else experiences this but when this happened to us when we found out Joy had been using substances and was suicidal and everything the spotlight went on him and we're like let me fix you you are the problem so we spent about a year doing that and that was no fun for anyone that was really horrible and then I met Heather who we both know and she told us about the craft method and about, you know, we need to work on ourselves. Everybody's responsible for themselves and everybody affects everyone else. So the addict isn't just on their own world. Everybody's affecting everyone all the time. I think that's important for parents to realize. Well, and the the, uh, two thoughts that I want to kind of mention is that, you know, we don't cause addiction. And, and again, like, Sometimes there are some really extraneous reasons why someone uses, but we can certainly contribute by creating a whole lot of conflict and chaos in the Mm -hmm. family when we discover Mm -hmm. someone is using. And so when I work with a family or an individual, the first thing we're going to talk about is regulation for themselves. Uh, One of the things that was so beneficial for us and helped us immensely was that we were sort of tasked with taking dialectical behavioral therapy. And our daughter who was self-harming was referred to that program. And because she was a minor, they're like, as a parent, you have to do it with her, which I thought was brilliant. And the skills that we learned in self-regulation and distress tolerance and mindfulness and If we're not modeling those behaviors as a family member, if we're dysregulated and creating chaos and engaging in conflict rather than collaborative communications, we're contributing to this mess of what's happening in our family. And so we have to take a step back and think about our way of being. Yeah. With our loved one. One of the books that I have my families read is called The Anatomy of Peace. It's a book by the Arbinger Institute. And it is really in line with a lot of Brene Brown's work that she did. And it's cited in the book Braving the Wilderness, which is oftentimes we just broad brush people and put them in a category or a file. And Mm -hmm. so when our kid is using substances, we create a narrative and a story around that. And that story might be, oh my gosh, they're an addict and they're going to die, right? Mm -hmm. Now in my work, Mm -hmm. I don't even use the word addict because I don't believe that we 
should label. And I don't believe that addiction is a is an identity. It's an experience. Yeah. Yeah. And so again, it goes back to there's a reason why, but let's not broad brush and create a narrative around what's happening here. And the only mm-hmm. way we can find out the truth is if we're in our way of being approachable, safe, collaborative, so we can kind of get to the bottom of what's happening. So we get families regulated first. And that means being mindful, being intentional. You know, what are our values? How do we want to show up for people in our lives? Mm -hmm. How do we want to do we want to be confrontational or do we want to be present and do we want to be compassionate you know and then we get into sort of educating on Mm -hmm. what these things look like what is substance use why do their behaviors make sense when I can understand the why then then that helps me evoke compassion we use a lot of motivational interviewing in our work which is you know, we call them the superpowers that, you know, are so effective, validating and affirming and asking curious, open-ended questions. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, the last part is the collaborative piece, right? So how do we, how do we communicate in a way that is honoring and shows that intrinsic value and unconditional positive regard and I think too you know parents sort of think sometimes that this is actually permissive parenting I'm the boss of them I am the authority in the home I have other children I have to care for Uh and you're right and and in in the book the anatomy piece in chapter seven you know it kind of talks about this like we can be right and be wrong at the same time if we're wrong in our way of being towards someone. I love everything you're talking about. And I have learned this along the way. And I I did not start off this way at all. But it didn't take me long to realize I can't control him. You know, he was 15 when he, you know, had his crisis and, and now he's 18. But he's too big. I cannot like... When he's a toddler, you can just pick them up and put them where you want. But even still, even as a toddler, they can scream and kick and bite you and do horrible things. And you literally cannot control what they do. You can only influence them. But the person you can control is yourself. And by me, as a parent, calming calming the fuck down, <laughs> cooling it out, you know, like taking a deep breath, doing my own work, counting 10, whatever. and then then engaging and walking beside it has helped so much i remember a moment in the car dan had found some substances in his drawers while we were out and she called and said oh my god and i was joey why did you do this you were sober what in the heck he's like mom you're making me want to use more and that pissed me off bad because i'm like i'm not making you do anything but he was trying to tell me mom the way you're reacting, the way you're talking to me is making me want to use more. And I, I took that in and it was, oh, it was a bitter pill to swallow, but I never did that again. So I realized that is not effective at all. Even if that's how it felt, even if I was right, that did not feel good to me or him and it did not produce the results I was looking for. And there are kind of two little basic, simple things that, that I 
encourage families in and, you know, how we talk about all the time with the work that we do. And the first one is practicing the pause, which is, and that means I don't have to answer this email immediately. I don't have to respond to this text right away. I don't have to pick up the phone if I am not in a place where I can do that. And then the second thing is don't pick up the rope. And uh, the visual with this is a tug of war. Uh Right. And, you know, our kids want to pull us into this drama and chaos and tug of war. And part of why they want to pull us into this is because it does give them a reason to use or to sit in their own Mm -hmm. self-pity. You know, um, my mom is the reason for all of my problems and it's all her fault. Right. And so when you have a tug of war, you have to have one person at each end of the rope. Therefore, if you don't pick up your end of the rope, you cannot get into that tug of war, tit for tat, you know, all of of the chaos. And so we really do remind our parents not to pick up that rope, to pause, to think about, you know, how they want to respond or respond with intention, because it's really easy for kids to want to draw others into their drama and here's the biological reason is because it provides dopamine hits Uh so we get dopamine a couple different ways and we can get it in positive ways from exercising from Mm -hmm. doing well on a test from someone affirming us from the good things that are happening Mm -hmm. it releases dopamine and we can get dopamine pings from the negative things so when you use substances it releases dopamine it does three things it releases dopamine it activates your survival mechanisms in your brain and it works on the amygdala which is the emotional epicenter of your brain Mm -hmm. and so you know people say it was love at first use because it it does impact the amygdala which is releases those love hormones, you know, and that's why that's what we're really competing with. Yeah. If we're in a battle, it's, it's the battle for love. Right. Yeah. And, and drugs never fail. Right. Exactly. Well, they do eventually, but yeah, my son actually wrote a love letter to drugs mm-hmm. and to addiction. And it was, ter- it was terrifying and sad, but I'm like, God, I get it. You get what you need from those right. drugs. And he told me the very first time he tried weed, he's like, Oh yeah, that'll do the trick. Thank you very much. And he was off to the races. Mm -hmm. And I think Harley, I don't know, maybe he has a genetic propensity. We don't know because he was adopted and we don't know his birth family, but I'm going to guess that maybe someone in his birth family has that addictive kind of genetic propensity. And also he's just kind of that risk-taking and seeking. And he also had that deep hole in his heart from being relinquished and that we just took it all away. And how, how can we compete with that? Honestly, yeah. it's so daunting. Like what can, what can possibly give him that kind of rush? Mm-hmm. It sometimes can make me feel pretty hopeless. Like, dang it. I, I mean, I can tell him a million times, I love you. And I wish I could fill that hole for you, but I, I can't fill that hole. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and we know that trauma, adoption in of, of itself is a trauma. 
right? Because there's, uh, you have to reconcile this abandonment issue that somebody didn't want me. And I just went to a seminar recently on the neurobiology, neuroscience. And, and while there seems to be a genetic component, there isn't a specific gene. Yeah, they can't find the gene, huh? You know, that's related back, but we also know that trauma is generational and that we can, you know, we can pass trauma on. And here's an example. And there's a new book that Oprah has that she put out called What Happened to You. And she talks about this, how we develop patterns in our lower brain that are trauma responses. And even though, like, here's an example, I grew up in a very unsafe environment because of my dad's substance use. I had trauma as a result of that. So then when my son started using my lower brain, immediately went into survival and protection mode. And I operated out of those early childhood memories. And it was like it had, I was right back in that need to protect and feel safe. And so it manifested in the way that I related to my son, because I had grown up with that. Now, my husband had not. So his way of being with Jake was entirely different. Uh So even though we weren't substance users, and we didn't pass on technically the addiction, we definitely Mm -hmm. passed on the trauma because of growing up with parents that struggled. And so we have to remember that you know, we try our hardest. I knew there was a propensity for addiction in our family. I knew my dad probably had some mental illness. We were aware. And yet, oh my gosh, the minute Jake presented, I was right back into that trauma response. And we bring it in because we have our own lived experiences that have informed our narratives, our stories, and even biologically our neural pathways that we default to as patterns. So, so much of the work that we do has to be about recognizing and being self-aware enough and okay enough to recognize these patterns Mm -hmm. and say, I want to break that pattern. Yes. And ideally before your kid hits adolescence, yeah. <laughs> Ideally, work through your own stuff, parents, before your kid is struggling. Do it. If you know you've got garbage from your childhood, go work on it yeah. as much as you can before. And the more the more self-aware you are, the more you'll be able to stay calm and curious and help your kid. So if your goal is to help your kid, go help yourself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Go do, go do your own work. It is. And you know, we we have so many resources nowadays and even thinking in terms of 10 years ago or 12 years ago we didn't have a Brene Brown out there we weren't talking yeah. about trauma like we are now we I didn't even I remember in my some of my circles this talk about EMDR like it was uh-huh. like voodoo you know uh-huh. it was kind of like how chiropractic was in the six yeah yeah. Right? Very skeptical, very much like, you know, that and it wasn't covered by insurance back then. Now we have no reason to yeah. get the work done that we need to get done to get through our own 
trauma responses. And so start, you know, start where you start. And, you know, sometimes there's just a whole lot of compounding little T traumas. You may not have had a huge trauma, like, Mm -hmm. you know, a rape or abuse or, you know, there's all kinds of traumas. There's a million different kinds, but maybe it was just the feeling of the omission of love or the neglect of of attachment and care, uh, you know, distracted parents, or Mm -hmm. maybe it was our own. And sometimes I think mental health differences create their own sort of trauma. You know, Mm -hmm. I am, I am not able to focus. Therefore, I am labeled as lazy. Uh, Therefore, I am inherently wrong. Yeah, traumatized in school, people with ADD, ADHD, autism, all sorts of things get get traumatized because they're not fitting into the the mold, which we're also trying to work on, I suppose. And how shame just comes into that, right? And especially if you're surrounded by people who have very black and white thinking. Yeah, I think shame is very prevalent. Yeah, shame is probably at the root of most addictions, would you say? Uh Shame, shame, that's just a tough one. Yeah. So yeah, Brene Brown on that one too. Go, go, go study Brene Brown. There's so much. I'll put a bunch of these resources on the show notes, all the books that Pam's mentioned and uh, Oprah book and all sorts of stuff. There's so much good stuff out there. There's no reason if you're willing to read or watch videos or listen to books or whatever. And podcasts. Oh yeah. Podcasts. Yes. Listen to podcasts. I like that too. I know that you have several different streams of resources going in your family. You have a couple of different companies and would you like to talk about the ways you're helping families? Yeah. So I am a person of faith and I also work with all people of all faiths backgrounds. Mm-hmm. You know, when we started, we started under a faith-based nonprofit and moved out from under them because I'm like, this is the secret sauce. And mm-hmm. I, I just met with a organization today that is specifically helping East African community. And what we, you know, what we found is that there are two things that definitely connect all of us. And one is love. And if we just talk about love and kindness and compassion, and one is our suffering. Mm -hmm. And so part of the reason why I wanted to work in the faith community was to help families who perhaps have sort of been entrenched in some black and white thinking Uh, to try to change some of the ideology and stigma in that community around substance use. And as I did that work, I realized, oh my gosh, everybody needs to get educated with some of the things that we do. So Thrive Family Recovery Resources is our nonprofit. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of work in Minnesota, but also nationally. And then my husband, when I talked about the mountains, Mm -hmm. I can't talk about the work that we do without talking about Jake's legacy. Our Thrive organization started because we realized that families were really only getting directed to one type of support, one resource, and it didn't resonate with the majority of families. And how can we holistically help families with practical solutions that aren't 12-step based? Uh, Yeah, I was going to say the one resource is 12-step, which a lot of courts mandate you know, they don't even give you an option. It's just 12-step programs or nothing. Right. Yeah. 
And a lot of people don't resonate with it. And and for families, even treatment centers are just go to an Al-Anon meeting yeah. and yeah. that might yeah. be helpful for some people and it may not. And so how yeah. can we help them holistically? And that started in 2016, long before Jake, and he wasn't even in recovery then. He activated his recovery in 2017. Hmm. I shouldn't say that because he had two years where he was in a the juvenile treatment court here in our county. And so there was a lot of this foundation being laid then and, you know, collaborative contingency management and, you know, all those kind of things. So we were learning and growing. And, and then my husband really found this amazing connection between outdoor adventure and recovery. And so he noticed how Jake was so different out in the wilderness. And then he noticed how so many people in early recovery sit in their rooms and play video games and don't engage in, you know, sort of getting those, they think recovery is boring. And, And so we're always looking for ways to make recovery less boring. And so he started a nonprofit program that brings men and women out into the wilderness. And he has taken parents with minor children on trips as well. So it, you know, if you were a dad or a mom and had a son or a daughter, we have the accessibility to do these really low cost trips. So people from all over the country, we do six trips a year to Colorado, and we bring a van from Minnesota, and we meet people that are traveling in in Colorado, and we do a six-day backpacking adventure. So they are carrying a backpack. We do have an optional summit of a 14er, you know, a a 14,000-foot mountain, but they are life-changing. I mean, we've had people come back and start ministries, sell their homes, you know, just do really radical things after change jobs. So this is different than wilderness treatment. Yes, it is non-clinical. If you send your kid to wilderness, for instance, it's months for months at a time. It can be 90 days is pretty typical, right? Oh, 90 days. Okay. Mm -hmm. It can be longer with, you know, some therapeutic programs. This is a, this is basically in the vein of peer-to-peer support. So we have embedded Uh peer support specialists that go on these trips Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's coming alongside people in a non-clinical way to just Mm -hmm. encourage them and support them and, and really just engage them in something that gives them an experience that they would never have been able to do on their own. Now, is everyone supposed to be sober when they go on these trips? We require 24 hours of sobriety. <laughs> okay. So, okay. you know, our son was, he, you know, during that time when he was younger, using marijuana. And of course, the first day was always sort of difficult. But, <laughs> uh, you know, obviously, there's no substance use on our trips. And we will yeah, talk right. about recovery and health and well-being. So you might have a 16-year-old or 17-year-old who is just sort of experimenting. And you're like, what? You know, summers are hard. Let's go do this trip. You know, son, how about you and I, we go climb a mountain together. You know, we can accommodate that. So we have Minnesota trips and and that is his deal. And then I do private coaching outside of my nonprofit work. I run a large Facebook group called Thrive Family Addiction Support. Mm -hmm. It's a great Facebook group. 
I am always doing free work. You know, like I said, I just had a call from Miguel in California today looking for resources for her son. And I'm well networked all throughout the country. Yeah. And I'm able to sort of point people in the right direction and give them resources yeah. and get them started on this journey, regardless of their ability to pay or not pay. Yeah. And most of the time, I don't even, you know, I'm very now because I'm doing so much of the nonprofit work, I only have probably five clients. Okay. So it it is not going to be my primary mm-hmm. business. But I also know that, you know, I want to keep my fingers in that practical work that I do. Yeah. And I I have seen since Jake died there I've experienced a lot of people kind of wanting to pigeonhole me into the grief. Wow. And uh-huh. and for me it's all about life. It's all about recovery. Mm-hmm. I I share this story often. We sat in front of a trusted advisor when Jake was about 17 and he said to us do you want to be right for the sake of justice or do you want to love for the sake of relationship because love never fails. And, you know, that changed our lives. And I would ask myself, if my son didn't make it out, what would this journey look like? And thankfully, we created moments, we leaned in, you know, even when he was using, we didn't shame him. I'll never forget a time we were out in Arizona, he was living out there in a sober home and he was in a very short relapse and I knew it and we still went and did fun things and took him to Sedona. And the next day he asked for detox. Okay. And I believe that had I been any different with him that day, if I would have called him out or confronted him, he would not have asked for help. Right. That's a great example. Yeah. We just really believe that it's better to meet people where they're at. Yes. That we want to practice radical acceptance because uh, my values and my faith values say that that's, that's how the God that I serve would have lived out his life was in love. And again, whether you believe in a God or not, most everyone can believe in love. Yes. My son used to play baseball and I used to just marvel at the, the it was usually the dads that were like, hit the ball. What are you doing? Hit the ball. And I'm like, do you think they were trying to hit the ball? They want to hit the ball too. Come mm-hmm. on, leave them alone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't need the extra, extra punishment on top. They already are punishing themselves. They know what they're doing is really not great, but they're just kind of stuck. So however we can be compassionate around that and go, oh, bud, sorry, you missed the ball. You know, try again. Well, there's another time. Don't worry. We got you. We're here for you no matter what, you know, that kind of energy is what I think will work better for everybody involved. And we practice this with our spouses. Ah, yeah. It works for everybody. With our other children. You know, it takes practice. Like, I, uh, but I have found in my hard relationships, and you know, if I don't surround myself with hard people, I can live in a bubble. And especially mm-hmm. now with Jake gone, I'm not getting that practice, but I still mm-hmm. have difficult family members. I still have children. I have now staff. Yeah. And these things are going to transcend your relationship with your child and move into every single relationship 
that you have in your life? How do I want to show up based on my values? How do I want to be? And what does that look like? And how can I move through that with intention? That's such good work. It's such good work to do that inner work of really looking at yourself and how do you want to show up? And I am so proud of you for showing up for Jake. And now, even though he's gone, you know that he knew that you loved him and that he had unconditional positive regard, no matter what. And he died knowing that in his heart and you were carrying on his legacy, which is really, really beautiful. And before we finish, which is a beautiful way to finish, I do have to say Every person should be carrying naloxone. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yes. You yes, know, yes. Uh, even if your kid is only experimenting with, you know, uh, nowadays with fentanyl, the dealers out there are making pills that look like Adderall. They're making pills that look like benzos and young people, really young people, 13 and 14 and 15 are losing their lives. Um, because they use one time or experiment one time and buy something off the street. So I really want to say to your audience, talk to your kids about that. Like one pill, one use can actually kill. And while we don't want to live in a just say no abstinence world, we know that prohibition doesn't work. We really, this is why connection is so important. We have to have these conversations with our kids that anything you buy off of the street, any person on Snapchat who wants to sell you something is not a safe person. Yeah. And so as a parent, as a, you know, we're, naloxone is available everywhere now. Yeah, you can get it from the pharmacy without a prescription. Make sure that you have it in your home because you just never know. Yeah. And Jake saved his friend's life that night with naloxone. And later he died using a loan. Oh, he, I never knew the whole story. So he, he administered naloxone or sometimes people call it Narcan. The mm -hmm. brand name is Narcan, I think. And it's a nasal spray that reverses opioid overdoses mm -hmm. for those of you that don't know. And it's like a miracle drug. Like, honestly, it just brings people back to life. So your son brought someone back to life and then he used and something. They dropped him off at the hospital. And he came back home and there were drugs left and he had used earlier that day with this guy. So yeah. he thought it was yeah. safe and it wasn't safe and he knew better. I mean, this is the thing, even people that knew know better continually try to outsmart the substance. And so, you know, had he woken up his girlfriend, had he called the line to not use a loan, had he made a whole lot of different decisions that one day that he had his yeah. reoccurrence, he would be alive. But, you know, all that to say, um, and we, we will never stop everyone from dying. There will be deaths, yeah. but we can mitigate that certainly by yeah. supporting, you know, things like naloxone and yes. other life-saving medications. Yeah. I gave some to my son and he, he was so grateful. He's like, thank you, mom. I will use this or I'll make sure everybody knows where it is because I, I know that you want to keep me alive. So thanks a lot. It was, it was beautiful. And I thought he would be mad at me because it would imply that I thought he would, might be using opioids, but he's like, no, mom, I get it. There could be fentanyl in my weed and I know you're trying to keep me alive. So 
just do it. Just get some Narcan, get some Naloxone, go to your pharmacy. You don't have a tab of prescription, but you have to get it from the pharmacy. And there are some free distribution sites. I'll put some links in the episode notes. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about, Pam, that I haven't asked you about? You know, the only, the only thing I'll, and this would be a good way to end it is people often ask me how I'm getting through this. Yeah. And I will say it's because we did our work. Yeah. You know, it's because we didn't judge. We didn't shame. We had reconciled all of those resentments. He knew he was loved. I call it loving well. You know, we had boundaries, but we because we had boundaries, we were really able to just meet him where he was at. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just want to encourage you all. And it's come up multiple times, as Beth has shared as well, that it starts with us doing our work Mm -hmm. and um, ask yourself, ask yourself. If, the, if this was the last text, if this was the last minute that I had with my my person, if this was the last conversation, if this was the last look that they saw, what would they see? Mm. That's really powerful. And believe me, uh, your story and Jake's legacy is affecting me greatly. And I think about that all the time when I'm dealing with Joey, because he's really on the struggle bus right now. And I constantly reminding myself, what's the most important thing? What's the most important thing? How do I want to be with him? What do I want my last words to say? So it's very present. And I so appreciate you, people like you and Heather that are talking uh, to parents, even after the worst possible outcome with your children happens, that it makes you work even harder to help other families. So I appreciate it so much. And thank you for coming and talking to, to our audience. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. It was such an honor. And um, I love the work that you're doing. And it's one person at a time, one life at a time. That's right. That's all we got. Yeah, very good. Well, I will put all of Pam's information in the notes. So make sure and go check that out. And while you're at it, make sure and find Safe Home on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. We have a Patreon page if you'd like to support us for $5, 10 25 or $50 a month. And then you get some extra goodies along with that. Welcome to our newest Patreon member, Darcy Middlestead. Thank you very much for your support to Darcy and to all of our Patreon members. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash safe home. We really appreciate you listening and sharing these episodes with other families you think might benefit from this information. So important. So thank you again, Pam. And Pam and I want you all to stay safe. safe.